we are part of something much bigger than sometimes what we typically are witnessing or experiencing. Um, we're going to base our whole class, each, each class we will be talking or situating the, the topic on a case study because I think that will help it become more practical to you as we're, we're looking at theological abstract things, but we want, we want them to be uh, t- we, we want you to be able to use them in your life and, and have them be tangible to the experiences that you face each day. And I forgot to print off the case study, so I'm just going to have to remember it here. Um, <clears throat> the case is a, a couple, Jeff and Sarah. And Jeff has been quite abusive in the marriage. They've been married for 10 years, and he's been extremely abusive. He's never hit his wife, uh, but he has a major anger problem and speaks very um, cruelly to her often. He uses tactics of intimidation by blocking doorways during arguments. And as a result, um, Sarah's terrified. And she lives every single day of her life with this man, uh, experiencing extreme anxiety afraid to communicate with him, afraid that she's going to say something that's going to set him off any minute. And so her life for the last 10 or so years has been one of constant fear. But they've been to counseling, and over the last three months, uh, Jeff seems to be making some progress. He's learning some things about himself, and the anger is dissipating, and the moments of rage are all but disappearing. And so he's, he's feeling better about how he's operating in his marriage. However... Sarah's still afraid, and Jeff is becoming frustrated because he thinks he's doing a lot of work and he's getting better. Why can't she just move towards him uh, with emotional intimacy? But she's stuck. And so uh, we're going to talk about Jeff and Sarah here in just a moment and how their lives apply to what we're going to talk about today. The first question that I want to ask us is a question of location. Where are you? Each and every day of your life, you wake up and you may not realize it, but you're, you're operating in a, in a particular space, um, a location. Um, for the secular world or for the unbeliever, they operate in what um, Charles Taylor would call the world of disenchantment. The world of disenchantment. It is a mainstay of secularization theory and modernity that disenchants the world. It evacuates it of spirits and various ghosts in the machine. Diseases are not demonic. Mental illness is no longer possession. The body is no longer ensouled. Generally, disenchantment is taken to simply be a matter of naturalization. The magical or the spiritual world is dissolved and we are left with the machinations of matter. And this is the culture in which you and I are living. A culture that every single day through media, through outlets, uh, the news, science, the arts. It seems that everywhere we turn that we are living in a place where the culture is seeking to disenchant all that that is spiritual from reality. Um, Another way to look at this, uh, another thinker, his name is Ken Wilbur, calls it the world of flatland. Put bluntly, the I and the we are colonized by the it. The good and the beautiful were overtaken by a growth of monological truth. Full of itself and flush with stunning victories, empirical science became scientism. And scientism is the belief that there is no reality save that revealed by science. And no truth save that which science delivers. 
The subjective and interior domains, the I, were flattened into objective exterior empirical processes, either atomistic or systems. And in my world of counseling and psychology, this is definitely where we are headed. Uh, you are no longer, in, in their eyes, uh, a, cre- a creature designed by a creator. You're simply uh, a conglomeration of atoms. And your emotions are all driven by neurological processes. There is no such thing as a true mind. It's all based on material matter. And again, this is exactly where we find ourselves. When we ask the question, where are we? I would dare say that most people in our culture would find themselves in those two domains. The, the world of disenchantment, where there is no spiritual, and the world of flatland, where the only way to uh, verify reality is through science. And while we as believers may, may not find ourselves in that location, we have to be aware that we are susceptible to being influenced by that mindset. And the Bible tells us in the book of Jeremiah that we, we have hearts that can deceive us. So I would, I would say that there are moments in my life where I live as though those two domains are the reality. Uh, Paul Tripp, I think, calls it functional atheism. I live in a reality in a given moment as though God is not real, as though God does not exist. <clears throat> If you come to my house and you hear me speak to my wife on certain occasions or you hear me speak to my children on certain occasions, you would find this believer, this biblical counselor, living as though there is no God. And so while we may not uh, confess that there is no God in a functional way, sometimes we live as though that's the case. And so that's why it's important when we're responding to the things in our world to ask ourselves, where am I? Am I in a vacuous universe where I'm the final authority? Or am I living in a universe where something bigger is transpiring moment by moment in my life? Abraham Kuyper, who was a Reformed philosopher, said this, Sin has not only corrupted our moral life, but has also darkened our understanding. The result can only be that anyone attempting to reach scientific knowledge with that darkened understanding is bound to acquire a distorted view of things and thereby reach false conclusions. And that's where we find ourselves. And so if we were to try to visualize this, this is Jeff and this is Sarah. Primarily, these are the things they're struggling with. We might also look at it this way. Those two circles there capture the story of Jeff uh, Jeff and Sarah. From birth until the present moment, uh, they have life experiences that have shaped them. Um, The way they were raised shaped them. The way that... uh, They've been treated by other people, have shaped them. They have their own personal story. Um, And now their stories are intertwined, and they're living a new story as a married couple. And in that story, we're finding some major breakdown for them. Uh, Jeff has struggled with anger. Uh, That anger is impacting the relationship, and as a result, uh, Sarah is struggling with fear. And if they are operating in the two domains that I just mentioned, the world where there is no God, then 
then they are very limited in how they are going to be able to deal with those issues in their lives and, and to reconcile their marriage. Uh, if they're unbelievers, they, they have significant limitations. Uh, they could turn to counseling or psychology. They could turn to things like anger management. Um, Jeff could learn some, some strategies on what are his triggers and how does he control them. And, you know, when he feels a certain surge of, of rage coming, you know, to leave the room and count to ten. Or they could go through some deeper things like cognitive restructuring where both of them begin to work on their belief systems and what they believe about each other and what they believe about uh, themselves. Um, maybe some behavioral modification, some marriage counseling, uh, something called neurofeedback therapy where uh, Jeff learns how his brain is, is influencing his anger and he can learn through this particular therapy how to control those things. And the same could be said for Sarah. But at best, these interventions, they may alleviate their symptoms by decreasing anger or decreasing fear or helping Jeff and Sarah get along better. These things might assist them in learning healthier conflict resolution, but in the end, they are left to their own self-reliance and to accomplish these superficial changes out of their own strength. And in that picture, I don't see ultimate transformation from the inside. I just see two people trying to apply methodologies to change certain symptomatic things about their lives. Um, in that unregenerate state, they also might turn to what we could call dead spirituality. You know, people have an inclination that there may be something spiritual going on, but uh, often they, they move into realms that are ultimately dead, like Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, New Age. They may try to find some spiritual cure to what's going on in their lives. But again, at best, these traditions might teach them moral lessons to help them decrease anger or fear. These moral teachings may help Jeff and Sarah get along better or deal with their conflicts in a more peaceful manner. But in the end, they are left to their own self-reliance again and their moralistic performance to accomplish these superficial changes. All they have is themselves. Um, and for them and for any of us that find ourselves trying to find change in our own strength, any of us trying to deal with our life in such a manner where we're not completely uh, abandoning ourselves to the Lord, uh, our hope is only going to be found in our ability to perform certain methods or our able, ability to perform certain moral Standards or to achieve certain more standards. If failure occurs in our performance, then hope is gone. How many of you have felt that way before? That you've got a, a marital problem or a personal issue and you're working on it and, and you, you start to give in to the idea that hope is found in being successful in what you're trying to accomplish. So if you have an anger issue and, and you fall to anger, then it's often you can give in to discouragement. You can be taken over by despair. Um, but the gospel offers something very different. The uh, philosopher John Owen said this about people that are self-reliant on finding ways of change and healing. Now, self-healers or men that speak peace to themselves do commonly make haste. They will not tarry. They do not hearken what God speaks, but on they will go to be healed. 
which is worst of all, it amends not the life. It heals not the evil. It cures not the distemper. When God speaks peace, it guides and keeps the soul that it turn not again to folly. Psalm 85, 8. When we speak it ourselves, the heart is not taken off the evil. Nay, it is the readiest course in the world to bring a soul into a trade of backsliding. In God speaking peace, there comes along so much sweetness and such a discovery of his love as is a strong obligation on the soul no more to deal perversely. So John Owen understood if we want to find true inner healing in our hearts, we can't rely on ourselves. We can't operate on self-reliance. We have to bring God into the picture. Um, In the end, Jeff and Sarah would not be able to see beyond the worlds of flat land and disenchantment to deal with their difficult marriage, and that would indeed be a tragedy. Uh, Turn to Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. Starting in verse 1, Ephesians 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedient, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And for the unbeliever, this is, this is where they are. Dead is dead, right? I once heard someone talk about this passage and said, you know, when you hear a pastor giving an altar call and he's saying, hey, you're at the top of the ocean and, and you're flailing and you're about to drown and, and God is throwing you a life raft, if you'll just grab that raft, you'll be saved. And this pastor said, if, if the person is dead in their trespasses and sins... That's not a good analogy. This person wouldn't be flailing and looking for a life raft. They would be at the bottom of the ocean, dead. And there's something sobering for all of us to remember. This is where we came from. We were dead. We we didn't have the capacity, the ability, the inclination whatsoever to reach towards the God of Scripture. And we were by nature objects of wrath. And I think if, as a counselor, as someone who deals with people who are hurting, this is one of the most profound truths for me to recall frequently. Because if I'm dealing with a believer, and we'll get to this in just a minute, if I'm dealing with a Christian, something miraculous has happened in that person's life. I'm looking at an individual where, uh, that I could actually call a miracle. Because I'm looking at someone who's been brought from death to life, spiritually. And for me as a counselor, if, 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 that, if God has been so merciful and so kind to bring that person from death to life, such a profound change inwardly, then how much more faithful will he be to continue that work of change, whatever they're facing in their current situation? And I don't really, I don't really separate... In, in this regard, the, the spiritual and the psychological. Because when a person is brought from death to life, their psychology has been rewired. They are now aware 
of something bigger. They are now aware of a person named Jesus. Uh, God begins to work on how they see the world, how they see other people, what they believe. And so remembering, hey, we, we've all been here. And if, if anyone um, is in here today that has not placed faith in Christ, that uh, the gospel is for, for you. But for those of us that, that have believed, um, we were once right here. And all we had was ourselves to figure things out and, and at best uh, live a life that, that uh, was mediocre in terms of fulfillment and wholeness. But Augustine tells us this, that humankind wasn't created to just live in that, those two circles. The bodies of irrational animals, he says, are bent towards the ground. Whereas man was made to walk erect with his eyes on heaven as though to remind him to keep his thoughts on things above. So there's a second location for us to consider. Location two brings vision and clarity to life. So let's keep going in Ephesians 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages we might show the immeasurable, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast." And I'm sure you're all very familiar with that passage. God alone, in His mercy, moved towards us, took our dead hearts, and made us alive. And Paul there tells us that we're saved by grace through faith, and both of those are gifts of God. And if if nothing else from this morning, when you walk out of here, Or when you're driving home, remember Ephesians 2. Remember how significant that is. Remember, any of us in this room could have been left in the darkness forever, blinded. But God, rich in mercy, pinpointed us, moved towards us, and gave us eyes to see. What a blessed reality. John 3, something similar Starting in verse 1 of John chapter 3, Jesus and Nicodemus, I'm sure you're all familiar with this as well. Um, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter in a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. 
So let's go back um, to verse 3. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So because we are believers and we've been touched by God's grace through His mercy, we have been given the capacity to see something that is very important. We, can, we, see a, we are given the privilege of seeing another story. We're not just stuck with our finite stories that in the end, if that's all there is, are meaningless. Because of the grace and the power of God, we are empowered to see another story. The story of redemption. The story that is found in the pages of Scripture. And we're able to understand that story because of the power of the Holy Spirit giving, giving us understanding through the Word. And that story, as you all know, uh, is made up of the creation, the fall, and redemption. Um, and it's important if we are going to deal with whatever issues in our lives that we're facing, no matter what they are. It may just be a stressor at work. It may not be anything huge. Um, whatever it is, it's very important that we always embed our story into the greater story. Whatever we're experiencing on a personal level, level is not the story. It's a sentence in a greater story. And what we need to, to realize is that because of salvation, we, are, we live every single day of our lives in a very different location than we used to, to live. We live in a different location than unbelievers. Um, Colossians chapter 3 I'm sorry, chapter 1, verse 13. Here is our reality, moment by moment. Whether, whether we feel it or not, whether we acknowledge it or not, um, whether it seems at times as though the world is crumbling around us, here is our constant reality. He, God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and He's transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. Salvation is a change in location. Where are you? That's the question we started with. Where are you? And the reality, whether you remember it or not, whether you have awareness of it or not, the reality is where you are as a child of God is you now live constantly in the domain, in the kingdom of light. And our job as Christians is to bring that into awareness. When I'm working with people, um, often when they're getting off track, it's because they forget where they are. They, they ultimately define their location based on their circumstances. Where I am is in a difficult marriage. Where I am is in a difficult job. Where I am... Uh, is just a difficult life circumstance. And, and that's true, and we have to take that seriously and have compassion for that person and try to practically help them in whatever they're dealing with. But that's not their ultimate location. And if, if all they see is that, then they're operating in their own stories. It's very important for them to embed their life story into the greater story. A way to look at this 
Um, think of it this way. If, if you were coming to me because you had, for counseling, because you had gone through some traumatic issue, and I sent, I, I listened to you for an hour, and we talked and visited, and I tried to connect with where you were, and I send you home with a book, and I say, go read this book over the next three weeks or so, and when you're done with it, I want you to come back, and I want you to have journaled all the ways that this book is relevant to what you're going through in your trauma. You took the book home. You read one sentence. Corey ran down the street. You close the book, and you come back and say, Jeremy, you need to find a new occupation. <laughs> you gave me a book about some woman running down the street. But what's the problem there? The person read one sentence and defined the whole story based on a sentence. And I sent them home with the hiding place, Corey Ten Boone. That would be very relevant to trauma. But the error is that they, they interpreted the whole story on one sentence. And when we simply focus here, we're interpreting the whole story on one sentence. We are one sentence in a greater story. And if we don't embed our life experiences in that greater story, then we're going to miss the purpose of it all. We're going to be just like that person that came back and read one sentence. It's not going to make sense. Suffering is meaningless out there. Difficulty is meaningless out there. But when we embed it into the greater story, suddenly meaning begins to flourish. This redemptive narrative is a transformational narrative. It is a narrative in which God, the God of creation has called us in by his mercy and is now and forevermore committed to accomplish his eternal work in our life and in our hearts. It is a narrative in which the author is quite intentional. One of my favorite passages, especially when I'm in a really difficult place in my own life or when I'm in a really difficult place with someone I'm working with, is Titus 2, 11 through 14. I'll just kind of paraphrase it. The author of this story is intentional with every life that he's called into the story. And Titus 2 says this, For the grace of God has appeared, and it is teaching us to live self-controlled, upright lives in this present age. As we wait for the blessed appearing of our Lord and Jesus. Who's committed to helping us be zealous for things that are good. That's good news for me. Because that same struggle that I keep stubbing my toe on over and over and over. If I just deal with that out here. At some point I'm going to become hopeless that change isn't possible. I'm too messed up. This is too embedded into my soul. But when I bring it into the greater story, something else begins to speak into my heart. And that is this. I don't care how long you've struggled with that struggle. The grace of God is here. It is present. And it is committed to teaching you to live a self-controlled, upright life now. And so my, my choice is by faith to believe that. And by faith to stand up again and try again by the grace of God. So we want to, this class is going to be a lot about what's going on in this story. What are the elements of this story that we need to be aware of that can be helpful in a time of difficulty or in a time of blessing? And today I just want to introduce um, 
one, of, one aspect, which is the biggest aspect of this story, and that's God. How many of you have ever heard of the, the theological idea of the economic trinity? The economic trinity. Okay, don't freak out. We're going we're gonna to bring it down to earth. Um, to start with, I want to quote a wonderful theologian, John Frame, on this, and then we'll just unpack it together. The ontological trinity, sometimes called the imminent trinity, is the trinity as it exists necessarily and eternally, apart from creation. It is, like God's attributes, what God necessarily is. The economic trinity is the trinity in its relation to creation, including the specific roles played by the Trinitarian persons throughout the history of creation, providence, and redemption. These are roles that the persons of the Trinity have freely entered into. They are not necessarily, they are not necessary to their being. So the economic Trinity is God as He is relating to you and I in our everyday life experiences. Uh, In His mercy, He made us alive. And if you'll notice on the outline, uh, the next three classes are, are going to be talking about the Father, and then the following week, the, the Son and the Spirit, and what are their, what, what is each uh, role of the Godhead in our lives that are practical to everyday struggles, everyday situations. Um, so what function does... the the person of each person of the Trinity serve in the psychological, relational, and emotional lives of people? That's a question that we're going to try to get to the bottom of. What function does each person of the Trinity serve in the psychological, relational, and emotional lives of his people? And then what is the particular relevance of the Father, Son, and Spirit in regard to transformation, in regards to change? Um, as you may have read in the bulletin, The gospel isn't just about becoming saved. That's a huge change. And again, that's the foundational change upon which all other change rests, is that we've been made alive. Um, But the gospel brings more to that. Uh, To unpack the the idea of the economic trinity in Scripture, uh, 1 Peter 1, verses 1 and 2 gives us a glimpse. 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, here it is, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. And Frame unpacks that passage this way. This is a useful generalization generalization about the distinctive roles of roles of the divine persons. And this is what how we will unpack it in the coming weeks. The Father plans. So from all eternity, the Father has had a plan. The Son executes that plan. And the Spirit continually applies this plan. And what we're going to do in the coming weeks is unpack how is that relevant to my job? How is that relevant to parenting? How is that relevant to those days when I wake up anxious 
and afraid or stressed? How does it apply to the darker moments when I, I feel depressed and discouraged and, or I'm upset with my spouse and we fought about that same issue yet again for the last 10 years? How does this idea of the father plans, the son execute, and the spirit applies, how does it come down to street level to mean something to us in our everyday lives? And, and, and my hope and what you can be doing in prayer for me is to connect those things, this big theological reality to the street level of where you and I do life each and every day. Thoughts so far? Comments? vital to my life as I'm sure it's to others because I'm, I'm called to work in the world of a non-Christian messed up public school system where uh, people are made in the image of God and there's so many facets to that that mm-hmm. I've been thinking about this morning and it's I look good. forward to it. It's good. Wonderful. A word I use a lot in counseling is awareness. Because even though all of us who, who believe in Christ, though we've been given eyes to see and, and maybe we know, yeah, we live in a, the kingdom of light, are we aware of that moment by moment? I'm not. As I told you a minute ago, uh, Jeremiah seventeen nine tells us the, the heart is deceitful and, and beyond cure. And while, while we have been given new hearts, we can still yield to the deceit of the flesh. The flesh is a defeated enemy. Uh, the flesh does not have power over us ultimately. Uh, we are gods now. But we can still yield to the, the deceit of the flesh. And I do that. And one of the deceits at times is that I just simply find myself in that secular school system dealing with a bunch of kids. But I forget, no, when I went to work this morning, I was in this story. And I've got to begin to connect that. Um, And so one thing I want to task you guys with, and I'm not going to hold you to it, uh, but but we will maybe take five minutes next week and just see if any of you did this and what what you came up with. Um, A beautiful section of, of Scripture is found in Romans 8, 26 through 39. And if you have a handout, I did put it at the very bottom, what I would like you to do. In this particular passage, um, it's so encouraging because Paul opens up this amazing heavenly picture that tells you and I that moment by moment, every single day of our lives, the entire Trinity is working on our behalf out of love for us. And he unpacks just some specific things in that particular passage that, that speak to that. So I would encourage you sometime this week, several times this week, uh, get alone with God, read that passage and ask yourself, how, how, does, how does this apply to my life today? How does this apply to the process of change? How does this apply to my marriage? How does this apply to parenting, my work, whatever it might be? And then next week, just for the sake of communing with one another, I would love to take five minutes, ten minutes, and just hear what you gleaned from that passage in your own personal life. And realize if you share that, it's a blessing to all of us. 
All right. Any other thoughts? Yes, sir. question the obvious maybe answer is and this is hard that's a very hard thing and I find myself as a counselor sitting with people that want to turn to the last chapter every day um, learning this lifelong lesson of what it means to trust the timing of God and to not say that in a, in a trite way. I mean, that's a, that sounds trite, but that's a, that's a very big task that I think is lifelong, is learning who, this good God and, and what does it really mean in this moment of pain to trust Him. Um, I think doing life in community together with other people who are suffering is important. In the secular world, they call it universality. In other words, They'll put together uh, counseling groups for anger or addiction, whatever. And what they found in the research is when you get that, those groups together, there's something relieving about sitting with other people struggling with your struggle and seeing them fight the battle. Now, in our culture, we call that community. And we call it the church. And, and it's, it's one of the graces of God that He's given us. So I think... Being big in that is huge and not allowing yourself to suffer in isolation. Uh, I had someone this week come in to me and say, and they work at a church and they're going through some tough things and they said, we are doing this all alone because they're afraid to go to their church because of what could happen if this is disclosed, the struggle that they're having. So thankfully, that's not our church. Um, this is a church where you're free to, to live in that kind of community. I'm just... True. You miss everything about what happened, the blessing of all of that, the, the, the messages that God wants you to have throughout your lifetime and throughout the story. That's right. So, and, it's, and, and then also that story you miss being involved in other people's stories. Mm -hmm. Bless them and be involved with them. So. It's very good. It's real simplistic. It's very good. No, it's not. It's. I heard, I think it was Douglas Wilson talk about the problem of evil and he, he was saying a lot of people look at evil as kind of the accident that happened and he said no evil was written into the story and suffering was written into the story and, and while we're finite and won't completely understand the whys of all of that God has given us enough uh, to navigate those two areas of sin and suffering in a way that can even though it's still hard produce hope all right 
We're out of time. I look forward to spending the next few weeks with you guys. As we're moving forward, feel free to bring your questions. Feel free to, to, to bring dialogue to this. I welcome that, okay? Let me pray. Holy, Holy Father, we are here this morning. And what a joy it is to say that we can see the bigger story. And we may not always understand every detail of it. We may not always appreciate it. But thank God we've been given eyes to see. And I pray as we leave here this morning and we begin worship that, God, our hearts would just be touched by this wonderful reality that in mercy you chased us down and you saved us. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.